Welcome back, everybody, to the Talking Sports Books Media Podcast. And coming up in this edition, we're going to be talking to the former Manchester City, Queen's Park Rangers, and Rail Salt Lake Central defender, Nedim Anuka, about his just-released book. It's called Kicking Back, which charts his story from arriving from Nigeria as a five-year-old boy through a highly successful playing career at Manchester City as they transitioned from being very much in the shadows of Manchester United to Premier League champions. First, though, if you missed the recent show with Dave Hannigan talking about his new book, 15 Rounds in the Wilderness, which looks at the untold story of the life of Muhammad Ali from his retirement after that fight against Trevor Burbick, the drama in the Bahamas, up until the moment when he lit the Olympic flame at the Atlanta 1996, the centennial Olympic Games. Do give it a listen. It is a remarkable story and it's very well told indeed. Here's a clip from the show where I started off by talking about Ali's transition from elite athlete and this journey that he set off on with no real destination. He was just seeking an objective and to find a higher purpose. That's exactly true, Tim. It's really a case of Ali was finished with boxing, and even even for the first year of his retirement, people still wondered whether he would come back. And then he just embarks on this <clears throat> odyssey, to use, a, to use a word that I think best describes it, because he goes anywhere, everywhere, some, some places he's led to, some places he goes him, by himself. Um, he turns up in bizarre locations, you know, Pakistan, uh, North mm-hmm. Korea, uh, the Kmart AGM with Evil Knievel in tow, <laughs> you know, and what, what struck me is, is I mean, I've read everything about Ali. I love the Ali story. I've written two books about him in the past, is that this period was kind of underreported and, and not a lot of people knew where he went and, and what actually he did for many of those years. He'd turn up on TV every now and again in, in an increasingly diminished physical condition, but people weren't actually aware of where he was. And even the two greatest books about Ali uh, Jonathan Igg's recent biography and Thomas Hauser's oral history from from 30 years ago. Even those two, which are you know the two definitive books on Ali, if you want, they don't really touch in great detail upon this period, the 80s in particular, mm. when Ali was kind of a lost soul at times. It's a sad tale, but it's funny. It's heartwarming. He is a wonderful character in many ways. Just he ends up in places where if you were scripting this, you could not have put him without people questioning no, you know, the it, credibility it, of it. Well, that was Dave Hannigan talking recently about his new book about the life of Muhammad Ali after he retired up until the lighting of that Olympic claim in Atlanta, 1996. And if you didn't listen to it, then do, because it gives a remarkable insight into the man who really was the greatest of all time and will remain so for a very long time indeed. Uh, One other item before we move on, you might recall if you've been listening to this podcast for the last three years, the second show we ever did was about a book titled The Singing Winger, which told the story of Colin Granger, a man who once shared the bill with the Beatles as a stage performer. He was that talented. Uh, He was also an England international and enjoyed a long and illustrious career. Now, he sadly passed away in recent weeks. You can, though, still buy the book and you can still listen to the podcast we did with uh, Haider Jawad, the author. Uh, You'll find it on the website and on any of the streaming providers. Now then, time to move on as we focus on this edition's guest, Manchester City, Queen's Park Rangers and Rail Salt Lake defender Nedim Anuha has just had his first book released. It is called Kicking Back and we met up to talk about it a couple of days ago. I wanted to start obviously at the, the at the beginning and the start of your life in England because you're you're coming from Nigeria at a very very young age 
And it, it was particularly difficult for a, a five-year-old, you, in a, in a new country and as a black boy in a predominantly white school. But rather than sympathy, the message from your parents was stand up for yourself, which, yes. which you did and you learned very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, yeah. And I'm somebody now who has three children who are eight, five, and four, I believe. I think that's correct. And um, <laughs> I see them and I, I sort of wonder how they view the world. You know, the way that they see it is probably very different to the way that I saw it in that time. You know, they're in a different environment. You know, we have a bigger sort of family structure with uncles, aunts, everyone that's closer. But back then, it was pretty much my family in that place in Manchester where we, we, we sort of stuck out like a sore thumb. And people were very quick to sort of treat us as such. And it was a shame that, you know, I had to live those few years in that manner. And it wasn't as if the abuse was every day or anything like that. But there was enough happening to the point where you just wonder, well, what was the point? But, you know, this is part of the story. It's part of my story, my family's mm -hmm. story. And almost making the adjustment to being somewhere new. Because the difference, you know, from being in Nigeria where there are millions of people just like us to all of a sudden we are the only ones within a few miles. You you definitely felt different, but like I say, you know we're here today and we're we're happy to still be here. So overall, I guess that just forms part of the sort of character building nature of life. There was also quite a heavy expectation from your parents as well, both of whom were highly educated. I mean, your mother was overdoing a PhD. Your dad had been an engineer. Yeah. So they had high hopes for all of their children, engineer, lawyer, scientist, and you were expected to be a, a doctor. Yeah, and that's the, it's, I think that's like, that's a very common story within Nigerian households, especially for those who are like living in the UK as well. There's an expectation that you will do well in school and this is the path that they've laid out for you and that you must as such follow that path. Obviously, it turned out that I didn't necessarily do that, nor did I need to, but that was what it was. And you know no different from the sort of respect standpoint. Like, you really do respect your elders. And if they say this is what you're going to do, like, this is what you're going to do, you don't really question it. Like, they're making decisions based along you going along that path. And, you know, until they see that you physically cannot do something, then you'll pursue that goal. And, you know, when you look at it, them wanting us to be doctors, engineers, and stuff like this, it's not the worst thing in the world for your parents to want you to try and achieve something significant. So I look back and obviously they wanted me to have that goal. I just suppose the downside was of all the sciences I used to do, the one I hated the most was biology. So I guess that uh, didn't necessarily put me on a, on a good footing for the dream that they had for me. But the plan, the plan was very well laid out and it looked very well executed. The idea was that you sit entrance exams at all of the private schools. You then hopefully do well enough that uh, you'll apply for a bursary, which is obviously available to, to higher achieving uh, children. Yeah. And your parents, of course, alongside of that, would be working hard to make the significant investment in school fees. Uh, and they're doing two jobs. I mean, your dad was uh, teaching by day and working for the post in the evening. Mm, that's, that's exactly right. And now, very fortunate due to the career that I've had that, say, my kids are in a private school. And I still sort of like, wins every time I see the money coming out every month to pay for it. <laughs> and I think about my parents. I doing, hear you. Yeah, so I think about I my parents doing, doing the job that, I'm thinking as well for me, like I've got another 10, 15 years of this. Like this, it's insane. So then to think back to my parents with the jobs that they had, like the vast majority of their income was being spent on their children's education, like the vast majority of it. And this is them working two jobs and I like so. I didn't realize in the, in the moment how much of a significant, how much of a burden it was. But then you, as you get older, like it's, I suppose it's a story of everybody. You realize how hard it is to be a parent once you finally become one, and when you can actually see the world from a sort of different perspective. But as a child, you know, I understand why they might get annoyed if I say, "Oh, can I have this or can I have that?" Whereas now my kids are asking for it. I'm like, ah, well, you know, um, <laughs> unfortunately, that's not gonna, that's not going to happen. So um, yeah, that. They, the, what they wanted to do for us, it was very clear in their minds and they were going to do it. They were going to offer us that foundation no matter what the cost was, whatever they had to do. Like with my father, he'd finish school, he'd be back home for five, six o'clock, but then he's leaving to go to work for the Royal Mail at nine, ten o'clock at night to then come back at five, six in the morning. Like it's insane. It's literally insane. It's so unhealthy. 
and but he was doing it just to try and help alongside my mother to be able to pay for us to be in education for us to live the best life that we could live and all the while it wasn't like they were making hundreds of thousands of pounds in doing so it was far far less so I do appreciate those times more. I appreciate them then, but I really appreciate them now. And I truly understand what they were going for in that moment. And some of those feelings, you know, I'm very much trying to pass those over onto my kids now because I would I would do anything for them. But then I also want them to sort of feel and appreciate like nothing essentially in this world is for free. So, you know, you need to have the right sort of mentality around things. Most of the people you say you, you mixed with in the, the early days of your, your time in England were either Nigerian or African. There was a big community around you. Um, but you do have particular memories of one traditional uh, British family and what it was like to, to be around their home. Uh, and that was allied to, to excellent memories of, of rhubarb. Yeah, rhubarb. This is so within, well, where I was from anyway. You know, rhubarb's not really a thing. You, you're not really, you're not really growing it in your uh, concrete garden in Miles Plassing in Manchester. Let's just say that. And most of the places we went to, we were never really going to the countryside or places where you could almost see farming as such. It was very much like an inner city, urban living situation. So when we went down to where they were in Bath, um, this is Andy and Linda Wyan, it just felt so different. And everything about it was amazing from the size of their house to the way they would be like they adopted few children and stuff. To, so to the way that they'd be looking after those people, their perception, their sort of views on the world, the UK, how friendly they were, how nice they were to us, even though they looked nothing like us and didn't really have our sort of background and stuff. They were they were incredible. They were a huge, huge reason why we settled the way that we did in the UK. And then rhubarb as well. It was incredible. We used to make it the crumbles. Oh, I was absolutely absolutely incredible and you know now like one of now as I, as I get older again i realize that some of the things i've tasted and some of the things i've experienced like the vast majority of people don't even experience that so for me my little bit of rhubarb when i was you know less than 10 years old as such like i'm sure there's some people who still haven't had it to this day that <laughs> uh, you were you were scouted very early on by uh Den davis at man city and you had your first trial aged 10 and you're signed by them immediately uh, even though you rocked up in, of course, a Red England kit from Euro 96. <laughs> yes. uh, how did your, your parents initially view the prospect of having a potential sportsman in the family and having a career in sport, which, of course, is A, very short, uh, there's no guarantee of success, uh, and it's not a doctor? Um, yeah, it's the, the not a doctor part is very, very clear. Um, but one thing I would say about joining an academy at the age of 10 it's an easier decision to make because it doesn't come at the cost of anything else you know so essentially I could play for them on sat on Sundays whilst also going to school Monday through Friday anyway and play for school on Saturday so something else to add to what I was already doing as opposed to something which would which would need to sort of like have space cleared for it so through those early years I think my my perspective on football now in the academies is as I look back, because not everybody in my team wanted to make it as a professional, but they were too good to be playing traditional Sunday league football. So our our team as such just happened to be one which was rep where we represented Man City and we played against other professional clubs in the Northwest and the like. You know, that, so that was the only difference. Um, so we got we went through all the different age groups, and then it was only became only became more of an issue when. I had to leave my school, uh, Hume, Grammar, Hume Grammar School, after GCSEs because everybody who went in full-time at City had to go to Zavarian College. And um, the college itself, it was okay, but it wasn't Hume Grammar School. So that was probably that was the first time where like a decision had to be made as to whether I was going to pursue this or not. But when they're willing to pay you the mighty, mighty salary of £80 a week, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's an easy decision to make, is it not? Um, but within, within a year, two years of me coming in full-time, I was already in the first team, but this was alongside doing my A-levels. So right up until literally year two, maybe possibly year three of playing professionally, like in the Premier League, I was still kind of pursuing that sort of career path, which my parents would have wanted me to do. It wasn't necessarily going to be me as a doctor, but I was doing maths, business studies and ICT A-levels throughout the week, whilst also playing in some of the biggest and best stadiums around the world come Saturday. So, you know, both things basically were hand going hand in hand for was it seven eight years plus before in the end you know I called time on my education side of things and just decided to uh, take the football thing as seriously as possible 
It's funny is that when you when you look at how people recruit players and they think, you know, they look at the number of goals or look at the number of kilometres that they've run or number of tackles they've made or, or whatever. These days, when they look now at a whole the whole character, you know, psychometric tests, real psychometric tests. If somebody had looked at you and thought, hmm, takes everything seriously, plans everything, still good at education, is good at football, um, can manage manage life, doesn't drink, doesn't um, you know, doesn't party in in Ibiza, you, you would have been the perfect model. Well, that's that's on the assumption that that's the model that they're looking for, which it turns out in in the early two thousands wasn't really a thing. I think uh, football's changed an awful lot over the years, especially from when the Premier League first started. But as I came into the league in 2004, it's very different to how it was when I left it in 2020. 2004, you know, there's still that sort of uh, quote unquote British sort of like drinking culture and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And the foreign influence wasn't as great then as it is now, where even if you're not from a foreign country, you almost have a foreign mentality to the way that football's run. You know, the, the quest for true professionalism on and off the field. Like, I'm looking back and I'm thinking of Arsene Wenger's, uh, thinking of like Gerard Houllier's and people like that who were really, really consequential managers in the history of the Premier League, whereas now most people have got a bit of that DNA in, in their own management style because they either played under those sorts of managers or they witnessed the success that could come from having adopting that approach. So sure. back then... You know, saying that you're not drinking, you're more perceived to be a bit strange as opposed to like someone thinking, oh, that means like you're professional. Like people from 2000, from the early 2000s, if you're doing extra stuff after training and the like, and you know, unless you're David Beckham taking free kicks or people at that sort of standard, if you're doing extra and you're young, people used to say you're busy, but it's like it's derogatory. Whereas now it's like, wow, this guy needs to be doing more. He's not busy enough. You know, so the mentality <laughs> has changed. And my attributes at that time, I think some people appreciated them, but they weren't normal, you know, and not being normal within football can be quite tough at times. But for me, it didn't really matter that much just because, you know, in the end I was still playing. And once football was over, I could just get on with just the stuff which was more important to me, like family life, like school and the like, because at the end of the day, this football dream or this thing, it didn't really, it didn't feel that real until literally it was all consuming, which wasn't straight away. How did you initially feel when you signed up in the, the academy and you went from being a, a forward to being a defender? That that last game you played, you said you missed a sitter, but then you end up becoming yeah, a high-scoring defender. Was it yeah. something that you took to immediately or was it something that you wanted to rally against and you know, continue as a forward player? I would love to rally against it. And this might sound exceptionally cynical, but I think it comes from a good point. I believe that one of the big bits of advice that can be given to young players is just start up front. In the end, you can work your way back, but start up front because very rarely do you find people that start at the back that move forward. And there's so much joy to be had from being up front because it is hard. Like the job is not easy, but you can enjoy it more. Like the amount of times in my career where the training session would be going on, then you split in half and there's a defensive session and an attacking session. The defender's down at our end. We're like having balls come into the box and we're kicking it as high as possible, as far away as possible, blocking shots and stuff, jumping up, shouting, Adam's balls, you head it 30 yards. It's like really, really, it's like, it's not really fun. It's important, but it's not fun. And then you look down the other end and they're volleying shots into the goal. They're like deceiving the goalkeeper. They're after scoring three, four, five in a row. There's so much excitement. Like defending ultimately isn't exciting unless like you're really dominating someone, which very rarely happens. Because the game of football, if they didn't want there to be goals, the goals would be smaller and there might be more goalkeepers in there. But ultimately, <laughs> they want to see goals. So all you can do is try and make it as hard as possible. But even still, it won't make a difference. So the transition to being a defender, it was more, it's more disappointment because there have been games where I've played well as a defender and everyone goes through this. Once the game's over, you're inside the dressing room, you're just sitting down for a second. And you're sort of thinking, looking back on the game that you've just played and you think about the good points, the bad points and all this stuff. And there's a big difference between the positions because when you're at the back, you're looking back thinking, ooh, that was a good header. Ooh, that was a good block. Whereas the attacker's thinking, oh yeah, I slammed it into the top corner, we won 1-0, <laughs> or I beat this person with a bit of skill. And emotionally, it's, <laughs> it's two completely different situations. So I was playing, I was actually playing defender for school when I was playing up front for City. 
So I was mixing up in some ways. So when I did have to go back there full time, obviously I was having to play at a different standard, but the feel of having that view on a football field wasn't completely alien to me, but I was very sad that I was even further away from the goal now because, you know, the game's all about scoring goals, isn't it? Because that's what I remember more than anything. What was the moment like when Kevin Keegan asked you to, to join the first team for training and do pre-season for the first time? Incredible. As a youngster, it's, it is truly incredible because very quickly, like, so many options become available to you the moment you come in full-time. When I say full-time, like it's after you've done your GCSEs and now you go from training, say, two nights a week and playing on a Saturday to training three, four times a week. And things have changed now to the point where those kids are basically on campus for the whole time so they can train as and when. But from when I was coming through, you then we would train Monday afternoon, Tuesday, I think we'd be off on Wednesday for a full school day. Then we'd train Thursday, I think, and then Friday. And there was like another half college day in there. So to go from that to then, that was the, for the under-17s. To go from the under-17s to then getting a call to train with the 19s was big. To play with the 19s is big. To then get the call to go from the 19s to the reserves was big. And then to even get the chance to go and train with the first team. Like they're picking you out specifically. They don't invite the whole under-17s team to go and play there. You know, they're asking for certain individuals. So... It feels like a huge achievement. It's like a mass, it's a badge of honor to get the call specifically to bring somebody up because you're not, for as much as you're being called up to play, like you're not really going to play in a game, but they've asked for somebody in this position and they know it's you that can play that position as well as anybody below the first team. So that's like a real pat on the back because now you're in the mix. And when you're in the mix, anything can happen because very quickly, you can go from training with the first team to being to starting for the first team to being a big significant part of the first team. So it felt absolutely incredible. And like those are the moments where you as soon as you start telling your friends, like the huge sense of excitement is there and you know that the hard work you've put in has paid off. Uh, Sean Wright Phillips was uh, something of a mentor, wasn't he, in the, the early days, helping you to settle into first team squad life? Uh, Gave you his turntables as oh, well. Yes. Uh, oh, got yes. Got you into grime. Oh, yes. All of that <laughs> stuff got me into that Southern music because that was very much a Mancunian boy at the time. And as for, as much as, say, it's easier to consume music now, back then, like, they were talking about Sidewinder sessions. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they say, oh, look, did you not get the tape pack? Well, no, I didn't get the tape pack because I live in North Manchester. I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah, he was, he was a... He was a really, or not he was, he's a really, really nice guy. Really nice guy. And I think for the path that he was on, he very much helped people who were on it just after him as well. Because he understood the difficulties of coming through the academy to then being around the first team. But he knew that whoever arrived with the first team from the academy, they were good players. But there's a skill to being able to know what is required to get you to that next stage, like a true understanding of what it is to be a professional footballer. And most of the people not on purpose, but they won't really share that information with you because they just assume that everybody in there is like fighting for a place. But for Sean, he was beyond that. Like he'd be working hard to keep his position in the team, but it's not going to be doing it at the expense of anybody else, if you know what I mean. So he tried to uplift as many people as possible. And he definitely did that with me. And then even with the turntable situation, again, when you're on 80, 90 pounds a week and if someone gives you turntables, then when you have a look online to see how much they cost and it's like four or 500 pounds per turntable, you're like, wow. This is this is pretty special, and I think I've still got those turntables downstairs in my house. You know, now you were a bit of a budding rock star yourself as well, weren't you? A bit of a musician. You uh, did have a band that you played in with your mates. Uh, you were a bass guitarist. Uh, you played one live gig, and from memory, your uh, one live song that I think you remember was "She's Electric" by Oasis. Yes, that's correct. Yep, that's that's correct, and I absolutely loved it. And. It, my friends, um, they just said, oh, why don't you play bass guitar? We need a bassist. And initially I was like, what's, what's a bass guitar? Like, I didn't know anything about this. But to then get into it, you start to love it and playing along um, with songs that you know, songs that you love. And then before you know it, you're cursed with always hearing bass lines on every song that you hear. <laughs> uh, but it's it was very good fun. And being able to create something with a group of individuals was... Um, it's nice. Anybody who's felt it, anybody who's like jammed, I've done a jam session with people, it's a it's a very very special feeling to have four or five people do something in unison that sounds great, and I was very lucky to have some of those moments and sharing those with good friends as well was was very nice. I kept picking out bits where with with Kevin Keegan. I mean, he obviously took a lot of interest in you, 
and you could see some impressive character traits of Kevin Keegan, which which everybody who's ever met him will know that he is just a genuinely nice guy. There was the moment yeah. with you on the bench, uh, sat on the bench, and he's turning to you saying, "This, are you on a an appearance bonus? This is in the ninetieth minute." You go like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he said, "Right, let's get you on. Let's get you on." Yeah, and, exactly. and that made you three thousand seven hundred and fifty <laughs> quid. <laughs> yeah. It- Looking back, like that's such a nice thing that he did, but then also I'm sure the ownership wouldn't have been too happy with that. You know, they're, they're spending money they didn't need to spend because then I came on and didn't touch the ball anyway. But it, that's you know those things go a long way. It's not something that you do if I was like 23, 24 years of age, but because I was at the start of my career, you wanted to just try and get you out there, get a taste of it, get a feel of it. You know, enjoy the moment, enjoy what it is to be starting your career. And like, I was very fortunate to have him at the start of that because those moments I really, really did enjoy, not necessarily for the money side of things, but just getting the minutes, just being around that first team, getting to know people, getting to know what it's like to sort of work on a day-to-day basis at the highest level and, you know, alongside what what was, you know, an England manager. So he was spectacular and he was, he was a really good guy, really good to me and really good to lots of other young players as well. Uh, we mentioned you already carrying on the, the education, but but again, I mean, it's worth pointing out here. You know, there's you on the day of your debut. Uh, this is the Arsenal game in the League Cup. And you would imagine that every young pro who's in that position is, you know, completely absorbed by the moment. Get up, you know, all they can think about is the game. You know, everything is building to that moment. You get up and are in a classroom on the morning of the game, just, you know, making sure that, again, you're doing things right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. But, again, so maybe this was hinted at a little bit when I was younger, but... I'm in a position now where, you know, some people think that they have to check these 10 points off to guarantee that they'll play well and win a game. It's kind of like superstition. But then you realise very quickly, if you want to just look at it objectively, that it makes no difference. So for me, like if I've got school, well, I have to go to school. I'm not going to believe that I can't play well in the evening because I went to school in the morning. Like the two things are very separate. There are a lot of hours in the day and there's lots of time to prepare. But like I'm obliged to go to school because I'm enrolled in school and I have stuff which I need to do and stuff which I have to get ready for. So I couldn't really turn my back on it because it's this is what it is. It was important to me. I wanted to finish that year well. I wanted to pass my exams or excel in my exams and I wanted to walk away with a good qualification. I know I'm playing Arsenal in the evening, but like I'm still at school, you know, so... Yeah, right. Van Percy wasn't doing that, and he no, made his no. debut. <laughs> that yeah, exactly. Day. He, he definitely, he definitely wasn't. But it's just the reality of the situation for me in that moment. Like, it's it's kind of like the question these days. Like, when have you made it where you can say this is it? This is gonna what I'm gonna do long term. For me, it wasn't for a little while. Just because you just never know. So whilst I was enrolled in college, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to complete this qualification. Didn't feel like the right time to sort of step away from it. And, you know, I'm very grateful for that because then I ended up walking away with three A's and whilst also playing in the Premier League. And it's it's not necessarily a badge of honour as such, but I'm immensely proud that I got those A-levels in the same way I was immensely proud that I started my career in the same time as well. You did get a new contract and you're on, I mean, it must have been incredible. You're on £1,000 a week. that big stuff that big stuff oh and so you're off obviously you have to get the car i mean did you spend a long time uh perusing and thinking about it before you bought the audi a3 and then the other bit that i did like was where you added and of course there was obviously an upgrade in the date venues because you went from pizza hut to pizza express and wagamama's There you go. That's the, hey, listen, people know. People know there is a difference. And it's the same way that when I was on the 80 pounds a week, and this was at a time where, you know, cash was king and I didn't necessarily have a chip and pin, all that stuff. I knew there was one particular cash point in Manchester which would give you five pound notes. So every time my, my account would drop to like seven, eight pounds, I was like, well, I've got to go here if I want to be able to like sustain anything. So yeah, that change in money. It does, well, do people change when they get more money? Yes, I do. Mine was pizza to Pizza Express, you know. That's that's what it was. But it just felt nice to just be able to afford that stuff and not be thinking, of, well, if I do this, that means that I can't do that. And the money, you know, at that point, looking back, you know, it's, it's 50, like 50-odd thousand pounds a year is a lot of money, and I'm very, I was very appreciative. 
Were you aware of a need to be conservative with money? I mean, you'd been bought up with a set of strong values and suddenly having this wealth brings with it responsibilities, uh, basically, I suppose, not being too flash. Uh, not necessarily. That like the way that they were kind of set me up for that, but I just ultimately wasn't really flash anyway. And if I was to get something that was flash, but say you're expensive, I'd, I'd like to get it for them. I remember buying my mom handbags, my uh, now wife Lucy handbags, my sister's stuff, and all what that. Is it but with it handbags and the cost. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could not tell you. <laughs> I never understood it, but I said, ah, fair enough. This is your world, not mine. But I, like the the extravagance thing, it was never really a big deal for me. And the, when when I started earning like better money, the biggest thing for me was just being able to move away from the places that we'd lived into that point as a family. So in the end, within two three years, we had done that, and that was my biggest achievement because I was I was a mentality where you know, I like to see the money in my bank account rise. So that's what I was doing. And then the saddest day from when I started getting paid well was when I actually had to pay for this house that we all moved into. <laughs> and, you know, people can get, I get it, like homes are investments, but when you have to put down a big deposit, like it's heartbreaking because you know all the time you spent accruing that money. So yeah, that that was ne the thing about being flashy was never really a big deal. And even to this day, like a lot of people would see me and they would assume that I have nothing because I show nothing in the way that I live. I'm driving around in like a mini countryman hybrid with like a phone which I've had for four or five years and it's just it's just who I'm like the those sorts of things like the material things have never really mattered to me the experiences have mattered more so that's always been the deal for me what why did you decide to continue I mean, as you said you did the A-levels you then went on to to do SEMA Chartered Institute of Management in Kansas why were you continuing to look at your your education did you still feel that there was a potential that the football career might not continue or it might end or, you know, it was too good to be true? Um, not necessarily the case it was too good to be true because within, say, two, three years of it, like, you get to a point where you're now expecting to be trained with the first team or you're expecting to be in this side of the dressing room or you're expecting to, you're, you're part of the plans for the next stage of things. Whereas at the start, you're more like a peripheral figure who could be replaced. But within, as I say, a couple of years, I was very much a part of that. But the with the accountancy course, I looked at the A-levels which I had and I was trying to think, well, what should I do off the back of this? And it felt like that was the right thing to do. But it wasn't the right thing to do for me looking back purely because it was more of a professional type course as opposed to a degree type course. So when I would go and do the course, it was during... Um, you could either do it as a full day on a Thursday, I think, or for like most of the day on a Tuesday. And one thing I'll tell you, footballers will tell you, is like traditionally Tuesday is the hardest training day. So I'd finish training and I'd get across to the university for 1 p.m. and you'd be staying there till like 9 o'clock at night. And I remember times, especially in the winter, where I'm basically falling asleep by the radiator <laughs> and I'm surrounded by people because I think there were three or four classes that ran through that day. And those were people who were already in their working situations who were looking to add a qualification to get to that next stage. And you could feel that's what the sort of, the, the nature of the course was. And as I was there, I was thinking, this isn't really what I want to do because as I looked around, I didn't feel that similar to the people who were sort of buying into it because for some, some of them, maybe they've been advised to get the qualification and so on. But for me, I was doing this, I was doing this by choice. And it just wasn't quite the right fit in that moment. I think if I was, if it was possible, I could have done maybe like an open uh, university type thing. Then maybe I, sh I would have done that and should have done that and would have fit a bit better. But instead, as I say, going for a professional course probably wasn't the right thing to do, even though it felt like it was the right thing at the time after finishing my A-levels. Sad moment when Kevin Keegan decided to, to leave by mutual consent. Uh, but you had a different view of the coach that came in to replace him, Stuart Pearce. You found him a little too easily influenced by others? Yeah, I would, uh, yeah, that that's exactly how I found him. But a lot of this stuff I didn't realise until later because in the moment as a young player, you don't really have that much of a voice. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm not sure. But you're just taking things in, like, and you forget sometimes that those young players are learning about the game in whatever situation that they're in. So the assumption is that whatever you're seeing is normal, and you don't realize that it's abnormal until you go elsewhere or you see different managers. And for me, a lot of that came after he left because then you start to notice more of the 
sort of flaws in some ways that he had. Like in that time, um, there were people like Joey Barton who, for as good a player as he was, he was quite quite disruptive in the way that he'd be acting off the field sometimes and the like. And I look back and he's 22, 23 years of age, which in the grand scheme of football is very, very young. But he was allowed to do all of that stuff. But I think a stronger manager coming in would have been able to deal with that from the get-go. And maybe that would have helped him throughout his career and maybe be more successful through an understanding of what, say, what's required as a collective. But it never really it never really happened. And I think he misjudged a lot of people, allowed a lot of stuff to go on. And I'm sure he had good intentions because he wasn't a bad guy. But I don't think overall he was as respected as maybe he thought that he was. He worked in the of, grime, mind you. I can tell you that. He was yeah, a, well, he was a big, heavy rock fan. Exactly. But that's another <laughs> thing. Like this, this is this is psycho. I remember watching him when I was younger. This is psycho. But when he's when he was there as a coach, psycho was like the last thing that he was. You know, in some ways, he was exceptionally timid, and he didn't really bring that sort of fear factor that you know would be assumed from the outside where people where he'd be the master of motivation everybody be running through a big wall for him instead he just at times allowed way too much stuff to go on mind you you might have thought he was a different type of psycho when he made that decision to bring another keeper on was it uh, nicky weaver on to replace david james but keep david james as an outfield player even as you say that now it makes no sense you know what i mean like there's no way to sort of put it into words for it to be reasonable because i think that is it's argue, I think it's probably a first in football since we've been taking note of things. And it's just a ridiculous decision, especially given the fact that for that game, like if we won, we'd qualify for the UEFA Cup. So this is a huge game. It's the last game of the season. It's against Borough. And if Borough draw, then, and we're at home. And if, so if Borough draw, they go into the UEFA Cup. So it's like a really significant game. This is my first season as, as like a pro for City. So then when... Claudio Reyna, our American central midfielder, is coming off and uh, Nicky Weaver's coming on. There's a bit of confusion because now everybody in the stadium is now in this life first where you're wondering, well, what does that mean? Because the two goalkeepers, that must be a mistake. The immediate assumption is that that must be a mistake. But it's reality and it was a planned reality because after, before the game, he'd had to have David James have an outfield shirt printed. So he was planning to do just that. And then you wonder, well, it's the biggest game of the season. Why would you plan to put a goalkeeper outfield when you've got enough players in the squad to be able to win a match? Because that's what they've done to this point. I think that was the only time David James ever played as an outfielder. And I think that'll be the last time a goalkeeper <laughs> ever does that as well. So I think it's fair to say he very much got that wrong. But that was just thinking. He thought it made sense in the time. But looking back, I think it's just a ridiculous decision. He took over the under-21s as well, and England got to the final of that tournament against Germany. He subbed you at half-time, didn't he? For yeah, he did, Michael yeah. Mancien. Yeah, he did, yeah. And the the frustrating thing for me about that was, like, apart since the early to mid-80s, England haven't done that well at under-21 championships. Uh, throughout my time, I played for the 21s for three seasons. I played for the 1982 group, the 84 group, and then my group, the 86 group. And in the first spell, we didn't. We went to the playoffs but didn't qualify. The next spell, we made it to the semifinals. And then this time, getting to the finals. And this is my last game, officially my last game. Like I'm too old to be selected after this. And I was one of the leaders in the team. I missed the first game through injury, but I was one of the ones that was in discussion to be captain. So to then be 1-0 down in the biggest game for the 21s, which we've had in 20-odd years, 25 years. And then the guy who I know, who was my old club manager, for him to take me off at half-time, I just didn't understand it. I wasn't playing badly. The game wasn't going badly. But he felt, again, that was the right decision to make. And for me personally, and obviously just for me, that decision ranks in the same way as that one of ringing on another goalkeeper. Like, I, I'm trying to figure out what the logic is behind it. And to this day, I've not really had it. And it's not because of Michael Mancian, because like, Michael Mancian's a good friend of mine, but I'm sure he was just as surprised to get a nod saying he's coming on at halftime. Like, if I was injured or whatever, fair enough, but I wasn't. So, as he said, I was coming off at halftime, there was silence in the dressing room, because everyone knows who I was as well. And they went out there in the second half. And I was just so stunned that I didn't even go out for the first 15, 20 minutes of that. I was just genuinely stunned because I didn't like what, what's just happened. And now tell me, you did have a lot of time for Sven when he took over, who was generally universally liked, a very charming man. He 
set up interesting training sessions. And as you say, you never dreaded the journey into work whilst he was there. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And I think the word charming is, is a great way to describe him. But there was something there as well because it wasn't just his personality that brought success. His personality added to the sort of thought process he had about training, had about trying to play football the right way, you know, making sure that you kept yourself available. And, you know, when he said stuff to you, he wasn't just saying it for the sake of it. He genuinely believed it. And that could be that could be really inspirational, especially when you looked at his, say, track record to that point, you know, as an international manager, as the success he'd had around Europe and so on. And when he says you're a good player, you think about all the good players that he's seen in the past. You know, that meant a lot, especially for us at City at that time, because it's not like we were a great side. Obviously, at that point, we'd had the takeover from Texan Chinawatra, so it felt like we were heading in the right direction. But... You know, we'd had two, three years of Stuart Pearce just before that where, you know, there was some season there was a season where we didn't score a goal at home for three months. So Sven being there was a boost, playing nice football, bringing in a different type of player, having a different sort of perspective of what good football is. And it's winning football, obviously, but he wants to get the ball down, move it this way, play nice this way. And so for us going to the training ground, you knew the training sessions were going to be based around, were going to be geared towards playing the nice bit of football when you go into the stadium the crowd were looking forward to seeing nice football with good players as opposed to just like you know head it kick it might win it type games mm. so Sven was Sven was fantastic for the club in that moment and uh, yeah he definitely laid the foundations for what came next Did you have any inkling or you or any of the players around at the time of the takeover by the Abu Dhabi group who, who came in in the, the following summer uh, and then suddenly pumped all this money in, and then you, I can only imagine you're watching the news and there's, hey, look, Robinho's arrived. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's that's one misconception that some have, and I don't know how many some is, but within football, sometimes we get the information the same way that like just every other stakeholder would. Like you just see it announced on TV or you read about it in a newspaper, because some of those decisions are happening above your head. And they don't necessarily need to trickle down that information because for you, it's just business as usual. If it's a case of you are moving somewhere, then, you know, you'll be told. But if it's a sort of structural thing or like an ownership thing, like that just happens to them because you have no say. It's just like, this is what it is. And they keep things quiet because they know as well, information spreads very quickly within football, especially in this sort of 24-hour news era as well. So they have to keep everything as tight as possible. So to be sitting in my front living room and just seeing like my club transform apparently into this new juggernaut richest club in the world was the tag but then you travel into work the next day and the training ground's exactly the same you know it's it's a weird feeling like everything's changed but it still looks exactly the same um but it was it was very very strange and for me personally being as having been a city supporter for most of my life at this point you know you you read that it was real we didn't see anything that made it real and then when you heard some of the talk about what they wanted to achieve it was hard to believe that it would be real because you've never seen anything like that before because the expectation was that you know all these other big sides are not just going to go away so how do we get ahead of them especially based on the team which we have now which was essentially like a top half premier league team but just know, that. It, it seems like a, a quaint bygone era when you consider they made a what an initial 140 million uh, investment which will probably buy you one and a half players at the moment but yeah. uh, for that you were lucky enough to pull in Robinho, uh, Gareth Barry, Rocky Santa Cruz, Carlos Tevez, Emmanuel Adebayor, Colo Toure, Julio Lescott. I mean that must have been on the on the, uh, the face of it on paper that's one of the greatest uh, summer uh, acquisition lists of all time <laughs> yeah I think I think it is in some ways but only in the fact that they like objectively made us better without being say like the the Robinho signing doesn't fit in with the timeline of what City were at that moment but I think all the other people they do like Gareth Barry signing in from Aston Villa at a point where City were trying to go into like a top four top six team makes perfect sense Say for Jolene Lesko, he just had one of the best seasons at Everton. I think he'd scored 11, 12 goals. He was like rock. He'd just been playing for England. Makes perfect sense. Colo Torre was had been at Arsenal for many years. He'd felt success. Makes perfect sense. So these are all the people who are trying to get you over that hump to be involved in Champions League conversations. Not necessarily to guarantee you winning a league, but that was what they needed in that moment. And I think that's where I have to give credit to them because they could have just bought people 
whose ambitions were to win leagues. But when the mix, when that's not the general sort of feeling amongst the squad, then it's not really going to happen. You can sign someone that's going to score 50 goals. But if the team end up scoring 60 goals throughout the season, then it's not quite the right time, is it? So I think credit to them for that, for that recruitment. And they were very big on selling. Obviously, the money helped as well, but they were selling the idea of what's to come. And as every one of those players crossed the line, it made it easier to get the next person and the next person and the next person because that sort of vision that they had was becoming a reality. And little by little, like as I say, it laid the foundation for what this last 10 years has been for Man City, which ultimately has been very successful. Now, the pressure was big on Mark Hughes to deliver and ultimately he didn't last. But then came the meeting with your new manager, which literally changed the course of your career. Roberto Mancini arrived. You have a very brief exchange where he asks you about your fitness and when you're going to be ready to return. And that's it. You know, you didn't know. So... Yeah, exactly. Somehow, I like I, d- I didn't know. Like as is the case with most players, like oh, just people in general. You know, self-diagnosis perhaps isn't the best thing when you've got medical professionals around you. So I said I didn't know, and I did it in a sort of like a jokey, jovial way, saying, you know, I'm going to try my hardest because that's what I always did anyway. But one thing we found across the years, and lots of people found this out, is that you did not respond well to people who were injured. Like there were so many times when somebody would be injured and they're supposed to be out for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And for him, he's applying so much pressure that if you're not back within a week, then you know, you're know you gonna suffer because of it because they'll believe that you're not trying to get back. But as is the case with most medical conditions, you can't get back quicker. This is how long it takes. Like as sad as it is, this is how long it takes. There's no rushing it because you won't be right when you come back. So for like football is a very complex sport with so many changes of directions, needing to be explosive, the time and everything. So yeah, he wasn't great with that. And, and you clashed as well, didn't you, at half time in a game when he accused you of not being in the correct yeah. place for a, for a set play. And he does come across as this uh, rather overtly schoolmasterly attitude yeah. when you go, do not answer back to me. Yeah, there is there definitely is that nature about him. And I think um, in that time for City, because everything was so new and he was the first manager in the, the ownership group, like he had all the leverage. So in some ways, he was the omnipotent force within Manchester City and whoever would essentially go against him would be removed, whether it's a player, member of staff, anything. You know, he was changing the lunch menus, the breakfast menus, the layout of dressing rooms, the layout of toilets. Like, there was hairdryer, there were hairdryers being brought in. Like, everything, we're training in the evenings now and everyone's like, okay, no problem. Even though, like, that's a big fundamental change for people who have children and like you know but it didn't matter because he had all the control so every time you try and push back he'd never really responded well and that was a shame because in that moment with me at halftime in that game like I literally wasn't in the wrong and I don't speak up often about stuff but on this one I had to because I wasn't in the wrong yet still that was probably one of the last games I played for City because from then I guess he made his mind up further that no this guy is not going to get the opportunity. It's incredible, really. Uh, Steve Bruce then takes you to Sunderland. You then come back to City after a season there. You have a meeting with Mancini. And then on the first day of your honeymoon, there's a message from the club saying simply, get yourself another club. Yeah, that was uh, truly spectacular. I remember my agent at the time when I was at Sunderland telling me that, you know, if you want to stay at City, because I was only alone at Sunderland for the season, and we finished top 10. So for people wondering how Sunderland, like was I in the League One with Sunderland? No, we were in the Premier League and we were all right, to be fair. Um, the My agent said, go back to him and speak to him and say that you want to come back and say this and say that. So I went back. And even though I didn't like the guy, like I went back because I wanted to play and I thought in my mind I'd rather play half the games at City and potentially win something than be at Sunderland with a different sort of mentality and play most of the games, but then sort of be looking for mid-table not mediocrity as such, but just like mid-table performances. You know, if you could be higher, why not strive to be higher? So I made that decision, went back, and it sounded like it was a productive conversation, but I was very much wrong. And as I say, day one of my honeymoon, there was this uh, voicemail waiting for me to say I need to find a new football club. So, you know, it made for a very, very eventful summer. And uh, it was filled with disappointment because I wondered, like, what what did I do to deserve this? But then it also taught me a lesson. Because as far as loan moves go, there are two, basically two different types. They're the ones whereby they send you out to get more experience or the ones where they send you out and hope that you never come back. And unfortunately, I was definitely the latter. <laughs> <laughs> 
It just, do you know what? There was one moment in, in there around this time where I'm imagining you and the completely forlorn figure that you must have cut after you've waited throughout the course of the summer, transferred deadline day, you've cleared out your lockers, you have no stuff, you've loaded up your bags and you've driven away and you're sat in front of the TV, nothing happens. And then the following day, you're turning around and driving back in again. Yeah, that was the definition of the driver's shame the, or the re-entry. The, oh, this guy's, this guy's still here. Wow. Yeah, it was it was so awkward because I made a point of saying bye to everybody the day before because I thought there's no way that I'm gonna still going to be at this football club after this transfer window. And that was because like I, I didn't train with the first team before that. I was very much just somewhere separate. And other people who would start off with me, like uh, I think Adebayors, Craig Bellamy's and the like, I think they'd moved on at this point because they made it abu- they made it abundantly clear that they do not want us anywhere nearby. Like we were training at three o'clock in the afternoon so that we wouldn't even associate ourselves with the other first team members who were training at 10 a.m. So that was it, it was done, goodbye. Everyone could see it, it made sense. You know, I'm obviously not gonna come back. So to then have my car arrive and have to say hello to everybody, like, hello, I'm back and now I'm gonna be here for the next three, four months. It was exceptionally awkward. And I know that it isn't what they wanted to see as well, uh, as in Roberto and the other people. But then bizarrely, for some reason, I go from potentially thinking I was leaving to like four or five days later, I'm in a squad for a champion, the Champions League game against Napoli, which was City's first ever Champions League game. If there was a quiet day or nothing going on, they'd sit there and think, right, we'll have another go at you again then. Because yeah. there's, <laughs> there's the international break when everybody who is not on international duty is given the week off. And so you think you're on the week off, so you book a trip to D- Dubai, I think it was. Yep. Uh, and then... <laughs> A call comes, well, everybody that is apart from you. You've yeah. got to go in and train. Yeah, it's myself and Wayne Bridge. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, no, he was just, he, he, all this stuff's in your head. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just, he's not being mean to you in particular. But then why was it just myself and Wayne Bridge that now had to stay back? Especially given the fact that for us, you know, he wasn't trying to get us ready to play us because he was never going to play us. And there were other people who were off who weren't playing week in, week out either. So for him to say, like this was on a Saturday after the game as well, just to get the text through saying you two have to come in. And we were in for a full schedule week. And then come the, that was the Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And then we're coming in on the Saturday. And so for those first four days, we're training with the reserves. And then come Saturday, it's just myself and Wayne. Literally just the two of us. So the whole training ground is empty from first teamers to reserves to 18s, whatever. And then just myself and Wayne. So you know, if, if somebody is looking us? at this from the outside... They would, they would pull Roberto, whoever it is, up and just say, look, would you just stop being so childish? Exactly, yeah, exactly. But I also learned throughout this time that, because that this was the lowest I ever was sort of mentally as a player, arguably, well, no, the lowest I was as a player. And I really struggled through this time. And I think, I'd, to be fair, I would have preferred it if it was in this era. We're going to have more open conversations about mental health because back then I just wanted to just say as little as possible and pretend that was okay, but I really, really wasn't. But with those managers and those people who affect you sometimes, you believe that they're thinking about you the same amount you're thinking about them. But for him, it's just an easy decision because on that Saturday after he told me, told myself and Wayne Bridge we had to be in for the week, I tried contacting him and he was just rejecting my phone calls and there was nothing I could do about it. So clearly as he was on holiday, as I was thinking, as I was driving every day feeling furious, I doubt he was doing that whilst he was in Italy somewhere, just enjoying his life. I would have been so tempted to be in training and sending him photographs and me <laughs> smiling from the training ground. But you, you talked about mental health issues and, and, and state of mind shortly, well, not long after that. I mean, you, you do get the, the, the crushing news that your mother, who has literally been with you on every step of this journey, is, is diagnosed with cancer. You don't know, in addition to that, that she'd only been given nine months uh, to live uh, how, how did it affect your day-to-day life personally you know having to cope with this as well as the issues with your football club and everything else well when when she got the first diagnosis it was more a case of believing that she would get better and going through all the different stages of whatever that journey would be you know I was very much by her side lots of other people were speaking to her every day once twice three times always seen her um and it felt like, you know, this was part of the process. But in hindsight, I didn't realise that it was terminal, as you say there. And it was a strange position. It was a strange point because from the football side of things, 
like that was tough and she still wanted to support me even though she at times she couldn't physically really do that but she was trying her absolute best she was still going to all my games same way she did throughout my entire life so everything felt it just it felt like a new sort of normal where she wasn't at her best but she was still always there she had some good days she had some bad days but then in time the good days were few and far between and the bad days were more frequent and then when she passed like that's such a like November 2012 was such a significant part of my career because you know interestingly I had a I had a 16 year career and that was literally in the middle and from then this, the second half of my career was it just felt different you, you said it was devoid of any emotional context. Yeah, the second half was in the first half. My mum's always been there. She was she'd been there throughout my whole life. But now the second half, like other people, tried to fill that void, but it was never the same when she wasn't there. So we could have nice moments. We could share nice moments. And to be fair, this changed a little bit after I had kids and I was in the USA. But it just wasn't the same because other people were trying to be her, but only she could be what she was to me when I was leaving the training ground I'd always call her but now if I call somebody else like it's not the same because it's the start of a relationship talking about stuff like that instead of one which has gone on for 10-15 years so it was very different but I suppose I look back and I just appreciate the fact that through those years she was able to see her son do what he did and we then had the quite outrageous incident involving various email exchanges with various club officials, which appears on the face of it to be actually mocking uh, your mother's illness. It led to the resignation of, of Gary Cook. But I can't even begin to understand how you must have felt when you saw the evidence. Uh, um, so one of my biggest regrets in life was the fact that I didn't take it as head on as say I would do now. Uh, I think the fact that I was younger at the time and with sort of the setup where, you know, Roberto's omnipotent and the club's changing and all this stuff, like I didn't feel I had enough leverage to really be able to sort of step forth and just say a lot about it. And my mom, she was devastated. My dad devastated. All my family from that standpoint devastated as well. But she never really went to show me the true levels of stress and sadness and anger that came with that. She was always trying to protect me even to the very end. So... You know, my take on it back then is one of anger, but not to the same extent that I would have now. Because today, like, I would take that up as a fight, even if that wasn't my mother, if that's any teammate, if it's anybody that I know. You know, that is so wrong. And I'd, as I say, I'd really go for it and address it. But, yeah, looking back, it gets worse every time I read it, every time I think about it, because I think that happened in my lifetime. It happened with somebody who I love more than anybody else. And the people who were involved, like, they're still just carrying on around with their daily lives and have moved on from it, whereas my mum's not really here. That thing that she... My mum's not here, that thing they joked about, you know, that led to somebody passing. It's like, she passed 10 years, 10 years ago. Like, what... It's, it's, it's insane to think that happened within within, like, my lifetime within football. But then, as I say, the reaction that I had in that moment, it's kind of handcuffed me because to this day, it frustrates me more than it did back then. But I can't change my relationship with any of those people should I see them at this point because it wouldn't make sense according to the situation. And that's really frustrating because, as I say, I wish I was older. I wish I had a more senior presence around me at the club at that time to be able to really take it head on for what it was because it took a year for him to even get into trouble. And I think looking back, that is ludicrous. Uh, you ended up at Queen's Park Rangers with Mark uh, Hughes uh, again as well. Um, and you ended up going back to City, didn't you? Who yeah. could win the title if they win. You could have ended up getting relegated. You couldn't have asked for a more dramatic return. Well, I couldn't have asked for one, but I also wouldn't have asked for it either. I think <laughs> I think a far simpler game would have, been, uh, would have been preferred from my standpoint. Because after I went to Queen's Park Rangers... And it was mostly because of Mark Hughes being there and I knew what he was like as a coach and so on. And I knew he'd play me and the like. Um, to then see that the final fixture was away to Man City, you just hope, when I, I went there in January, just hoping that it doesn't matter, you're hoping the game wouldn't matter because I didn't want to play them and have stuff on the line. Yet still there we were heading to it. And thankfully, it wasn't a case that we had to win to stay up. And in the end, it worked out that you know our result didn't matter. But that could have been psychologically a nightmare for me because... Like I support Man City, but I didn't support them on that day. 
So when people talk to me today about like the, how many city titles have you enjoyed and so on and so forth, I've enjoyed all of them apart from that one because I didn't enjoy seeing Mancini be so successful because I knew the effect he was having on the people within the football club. He worked very hard and they're good people who were suffering at the time. So I went back and, oh, it was a nightmare. Like I was living, like I'm, I'm a, it's, it just feels like a home game, but I'm an away player. I'm in a different dressing room. I'm playing against the people who I just trained with for years, you know, in a stadium with the fans who I recognize. Like I know people in certain parts of the stadium and all this stuff in a city which I call home. And as I say, ended up being one of the most sort of consequential games in Premier League history. And I'm just glad that from the QPR standpoint, it didn't matter because the thought in my mind of me being relegated in my old stadium by the manager who I disliked <laughs> with the manager who was sacked to be replaced by Roberto Mancini. Like the worst case scenario for me personally would have been a nightmare. So in the end, not achieve, not having that nightmare come true is a bigger achievement than say anything else that probably happened on the day. Uh, Joey had a memorable day. Of course, he always does. He always does. He's, uh, Are you surprised, by yeah. the way? Um, do you know uh, his, his transition into a into a coach, a manager, and uh, um, not. I, I was just going to say I can tell you because I come from the from the West Country and Bristol, so the guy is. Well, he has almost a god-like status yeah. <laughs> after that yeah. incredible end of the season last season. But are you surprised that he's managed to um, succeed to a to a degree here? Yeah, I think the success bit is very subjective, but that final day is incredible. You know, that'll be remembered by thousands of people for their whole lives because it was a spectacular moment. You know, it's truly, truly like great. And, you know, fair play to him and his players for that because, you know, those sorts of feelings there, they don't, they don't happen every week. In fact, they might not happen once in a career. So that that was incredible. But throughout his playing career, he always carried himself like he had all the answers. Like, this is all we need to do to be successful. This is all you guys have to do. And if there wasn't success, it's because you guys aren't doing what I'm telling you to do. So in some ways, that sort of managerial mindset maybe existed within him because the manager's responsible for creating the strategy, isn't he? But I always thought that, one of his biggest shortcomings was the fact that he could have his idea, but first, he'd never budge from it. And secondly, he didn't know how to sort of bring that into the people who he needs to be successful. You know, like the buy-in, you need buy-in. So sometimes you just need to be personable to get people to understand where you're coming from, but he was never really there. And it tended to be my way or the highway. Like this is the same guy who, as you saw in the book, told uh, Harry Redknapp that like his formation is not going to work. But it's, <laughs> but it's like Harry Redknapp, like he's been managing for decades and you, you're just going to say it to him. Like, what, what what do you mean? So I think him going into management, arguably, obviously he's had some, he's had some bad moments in management as well where there have been a few charges and stuff against him and he's had a relegation and the like. But it could be one of the best things for him and his personality because now he's not on the field. How is he going to get those players on the field to perform well, to perform how he wants them to? I think he has to sort of understand the people skills and really understand that group of players. And I think in the end, you know, that that could be a huge benefit to him because at times I think he's very much an individual within a big team environment, but not very well, not being very well liked within that. You know, it very much diminishes the respect that you probably deserve for the way that you play. Just, uh, just a couple of other uh, things. You you ended up at Rail Salt Lake City. Yes. And uh, had uh, an eventful time there. And I wanted to mention the moment because there's quite a lot of humour that runs through the book as well uh, as the more serious moments. And your match against the, the man who described himself as the Ferrari amongst Fiat's. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Memorable day against Zlatan. Yeah. He's Zlatan Ibrahimovic, like, the, the, I feel like the, the two ways to describe him, one can be according to his accolades and his statistics and the other one's according to the things that he says. And the two of them, even though they're linked because he can say he's that good because the stats are there, like you just don't say it as a player because it's almost disrespectful to all the other people who exist. Like I remember uh, one of my good friends when I was at uh, Real Salt Lake, uh, Justin Portillo, I remember him laughing and joking about when, um, when he said, like, you know, I'm a Ferrari amongst Fiat's. And I'm looking at the guy, I'm like, do you know what a Fiat is? Like, do you literally know? <laughs> because when he says it, he's talking about you and he's talking about me and he's talking about all of us. 
Like he's he's slandering everyone else in the league. And I think for big, big names like him coming over to the MLS, like it's not it's not a written rule, but you're supposed to help the league grow. And you help the league grow by not undermining it, you know, by by singing its praises. But when Ibrahimovic fans read him say that it's a league full of fears, like those fans will always believe it's a league full of fears. And not everybody wants to drive around in a fear or to cover one <laughs> should they have any money to spend. You know, they'd rather just watch the Ferrari wherever it goes. So when he left, he took a lot of fans with him. But he's a... Uh, He's a, he's a big, big character, but he's also a fantastic player. I think he's just won a league at the age of 40. But as far as it goes with football for me, like when you go up against people, it doesn't matter who they are, you give it your best effort. And if you're disrespected, well, like I was on that particular day, you push back. And I think in the MLS, that doesn't happen as often as it should be because they're sort of very reluctant to push back against their stars because the league will always... Like all the stuff Ibrahimovic was saying was being pushed by the league as well on social media. And I thought, what's the point? Because if anything, you're hurting your brand here more so than, say, raising it because at the end of the day, you're undermining the quality of the league because somebody's saying it's not good enough. So I pushed back that day. And I think he got a lot of respect around not just my team, but around the league. And it was fair because he's a fantastic player. But... You know, he went to the MLS, scored a ton of goals, but he didn't help his team qualify for the playoffs. So clearly, it's not like the perfect match, is it? And so, is there anything when you look back on your career now that you would think, "I wish I could have gone back and changed that"? Um, that that's a that's a really really good question, and I think most people living their lives would probably have something that they would call a grip regret but they wouldn't necessarily want to change it because I doubt many people hate the person they are in this particular moment and I do not do that I wish I played more games in the Premier League to be honest and some of that would come from the first sort of like quarter of my career being more available because I think it was after Mark Hughes came to City in 2008-9 I think it was where the mentality changed where you became he looked to you more as like an athlete as opposed to just a footballer so in terms of diet new uh, diet like stretching getting really prepared and being able to be robust and available more frequently like that became a bigger thing for me after I was with him so after I left City I ended up playing a lot more games so I wish I would have had that mentality when I was younger but then in the same breath this is the early 2000s and that wasn't the norm for many people so I think I wish I would have been more available because then I would have played more games and if I played more games I think I would have stayed in the Premier League for longer but then in the same breath, I've played probably 450-odd games uh, in my career anyway. So, you know, I played for 16 years and most people could dream of just playing one. So, in hindsight, I think all those little experiences, good or bad, good or bad, I think they help you become the person that you are today. And I'm quite happy with who I am. I think I'm a good person and I think I can make a difference. So, I think I'm just going to accept it for what it is, celebrate the really good memories and just take the lessons from the bad ones and know that, you know, where I'm always welcome back at all the different places I've been to and all the places I've played. So in the end, I guess that's a good career. And that is it for today. My thanks to Nedim Anuha and his book, Kicking Back, is available now from all the usual outlets. Now, don't forget, you can catch up with all of the previous editions of the podcast via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the streaming providers. You can download or stream all the episodes. Well, I'm taking a break from the show for the summer, but we will be back in September with a brand new show. Until then, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.